Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Boots Riley, the writer and director of the film Sorry to Bother You. Boots Riley was recently on the IU campus, hosted by the Jorgensen Guest Filmmaker Series. He joined Janae Cummings for a live conversation at the IU Cinema, where they were introduced by its founding director, John Vickers. Welcome to the Indiana University Cinema and tonight's Jorgensen Guest Filmmaker Program with Boots Riley. My name is John Vickers, the director of IU Cinema, and it gives us great pleasure to bring another dynamic, unique, interesting voice to the cinema. And interesting in this case, voice not only cinematically, but musically, artistically, and many other ways, which we're going to hear more about here tonight. This series has helped us bring some of the most interesting voices creating cinematic work here to Indiana. Uh, My introduction is going to be brief because we're going to learn a lot about Boots here on stage in a conversation that's going to be led by Janae Cummings. Janae is the Director of Communications and Marketing for the Hamilton Luger School of Global and International Studies. She's also a frequent host of Profiles on WFIU, and this event is being recorded for a profile segment. And then she's also the chair of Bloomington Pride, so it's going to be a great conversation. Mobilizer, instigator, and artist Boots Riley is a prolific poet, singer, songwriter, producer, humorist, screenwriter, director of films, soon-to-be television and music videos, community organizer, and public speaker, interweaving his social activism and engagement into all of his creative work. Never afraid to speak his mind, and if you have read the critique of Black Klansman, you'll know that he's not afraid to challenge his heroes. He found politics and activism at a young age of 14, and he's been involved, heavily involved in the Occupy Oakland movement and one of the leaders of the activist group, the Young Comrades. He's been recording socially relevant hip-hop and funk music for over 25 years as the songwriter and lead singer of the bands The Coup and Street Sweeper Social Club. His directorial debut was Sorry to Bother You, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2018 and then opened in theaters in July and took the world by storm. It's one of the most bold, provocative debut features introduced in a long time. He's also the author of the critically acclaimed collection of his writings and lyrics called Tell Homeland Security, We Are the Bomb. So a multi-talented artist, but more importantly than any of that, and I think more inspiring than any of that, the activism and the social engagement and the interest in changing the world, not only for himself, for his family, for everyone, is at the height of everything he does. Slovenian writer and philosopher Slavo Žižek wrote, the very existence of a person like Boots Riley is a miracle. I'm simply proud to be associated with him as long as guys like Boots are around. The radical left is not dead. Boots Riley's distinct, brave, radical American voice across creative mediums, here to stay, leading change, and creating interesting and relevant art. Thanks. So this is going to get a little complex, but I want to start simple. The title, sorry to bother you. It's something we've all heard right before we hang up, right? But like everything in your work, from your work with the coup to your books to this, everything you have means something a little more. What does this title mean? Well, like you said, something that's said in telemarketing, but I'm aware of the fact that 
often when we hear new ideas or learn new ideas that change our view of the world around us, it can kind of feel like a bother, can feel like something annoying. I mean, that's the initial thing. Hopefully, it eventually feels freeing. But yeah, that's one of the things. It's also somewhat sarcastic in that sense that I'm not sorry for that. So it's thinking about the film itself and what's in it in the context of other films as well. It is impossible to separate art from the cultural conversations that surround it. I think that's especially true of film. You wrote Sorry to Bother You in 2012. You posted it to McSweeney's, published it there in 2014. This is core Obama time, and yet it is a film of this moment. What do you think the conversations would have been in the Obama era had this been made at the time? I think that there wouldn't have been as much media covering it. I think it would have had the same resonance with folks that saw it. Right now, people see it and think that it's making a comment specifically about Trump and specifically about the recent things we've heard about Amazon. You could have made this at any era of capitalism and it would have rung true. I mean, and it's not about the tech era. It's about capitalism and Capitalism is always rebranding itself as not capitalism, as something new that's just inventive and just happens to be there. But yeah, I think it would have had the same resonance with folks, but it wouldn't have been covered by as much media because folks are open to critiquing Trump in mainstream media. There's more writing about how messed up things are Unfortunately, it's all being tied to this administration, and the same stuff has been going on for a while. I mean, we had Occupy during the Obama administration. It couldn't have maybe tied to that and resonated, do you think? Yeah, it would have. The question is what we would have heard about it through mainstream media. I think it would have resonated with audiences that saw it. But maybe it doesn't get to everyone. The marketing isn't the same. Exactly. Well, well. Yeah, hopefully we would have had the same push as far as the articles that were written about it and things like that that helped a lot of people find out about it may not have been there. Or it may have been looked at as, you know, somewhat paranoid in some way. A lot of people have compared this film to Brazil, to Repo Man, I think, and the way that that, uh, the style of the film is. And you refer to it as an absurdist dark comedy with magical realism and science fiction inspired by the world of telemarketing. Now, that's a lot. And I'm wondering if you were trying to bring all of these elements in when you started, or was this really just a film about class struggle? And this is kind of how the creative process played out. Yeah, all I knew is that it was going to take place in the world of telemarketing, and that there was going to be an on-the-job struggle that the main character needed to figure out its way through. And besides that and a couple other scenes, like the interview scene at the beginning, I knew I was going to do that because that's how my boy Rob Ebo got all his jobs. And then the, I don't know how many people haven't seen the movie, but the argument that him and Sal have in front of the uh, telemarketing place was something that happened to my little brother. And uh, for years, I was like, I'm going to put that in a movie one day. But other than that, I kind of just took the journey. Yeah, all of these crazy stuff happened because I needed it to happen to put the idea of what was physically happening there in context 
or to explain something more. I think what I love about magical realism and even science fiction in this film is that we so rarely see brown and black faces in magical realism films, in science fiction films. We rarely see towns like Oakland, for instance, not represented in, it's a war zone or some kind of negative light. Did you have that in mind? No, I don't think I did. I knew that I was going to write what I knew. So I knew it was going to be Oakland and it was going to be black people and people of color at the center of it. I didn't even know there was going to be any magical realism in it as I wrote it. All that stuff came up as I needed it. And so I think also story-wise it maybe works better because it wasn't like I have this great idea, let me figure out how to put it in there and figure out how to make the story lead us there. Like I said, that main conflict was one that I knew about. But other than that, it, it all came up in there. And the thing that I wanted to do with the film that I felt hadn't been done with black characters was to have him going through something that wasn't just about the material crisis that was happening. The movie very much is about material things. But human beings aren't only thinking about that. They're often showing like, when they show people of color, they're like, I need to hustle to come up and make this money or save this, or we gotta dance to save the rec center, or you know, something like that. But there's no thought of the reflective thought that humans have about being and who they are. The existentialist thing that goes on with people all the time, and so, I think the result of not seeing people of color thinking about those things is it's kind of a de-intellectualizing of people and a dehumanizing thing that happens so that everything that happens is just this mathematical equation. And so I wanted this character to be thinking about those things. But in a world of Hollywood where black characters characters of color are not able to think about those things. They are dancing to save the Rick Center. They are playing basketball to save the rent. How do you get this film made? Where does the money come from? Where does the backing come from? Initially, we got grants from SF Film, the filmmaker in residence program. I became part of that after we put out the McSweeney's thing. So we got a grant from the Rainin Foundation, who gives the grants to the SF Film Foundation. And that was a vote of confidence that kind of kept us going and I think at the same time got into the Sundance Writers Lab and then Sundance brought us to their Catalyst program which is a thing where they each year they bring 12 projects and sit them in a theater like this a little smaller than this that's packed with people that want to invest in film many who haven't done it before some who are just starting and over the weekend the 12 projects pitch so we met most of our investors through that. The main investor I met through SF Film, but also was involved in Sundance. And that came through Nina Yang Bon Jovi and Forrest Whitaker's company, Significant, who had done Fruitvale Station and Dope. So they have a group of investors that they represent. So they put up the lion's share of the money. Somebody that we met at Catalyst gave like an $80,000 development investment originally like just to keep us going. Some of the producers could pay some bills and 
didn't have to go out on tour and we could hire someone to help us start packaging stuff. So yeah, little by little. And, and here's the thing is that what I didn't know at the time, I found out only afterward that Nina told her investors, look, I've made you a lot of money. This is going to be good. Don't read the script. But they could have read the script. It's on McSweeney's. Yeah, but people don't read. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the thing. She was just like, look, you don't need to read the script. Just trust me. That was for them. For everyone else, it was more like they were so worried about all the crazy stuff going on, they weren't thinking about what the movie meant. And that's really how capital works. Nobody's thinking about the long term. How do we stay in power? They're thinking about how do we make money this year? They don't think that it's ever going to end. So they think about how do we make money this year? And sometimes they even hurt themselves in that. That's why they put money into think tanks. And those are the ones that think about the long term, how we're going to make sure capitalism wins and all that kind of stuff. But those investors are just like many of them, a lot of capitalists just think that they're the exception to the rule. They might be like, I wish we had a whole different society, but we don't, so I'm just playing this game that everyone else is playing. That's how we all think. We all have things that we could be doing that would be changing the world a lot more than what we're doing. And we feel that we are dealing with what we have and we're going from where we know. So the side project I have with Tom Morello Street Sweeper Social Club, he told me this story about his main band, which is Rage Against the Machine. They were doing a video that was directed by Michael Moore, and it was going to be on Wall Street. And I think it was, I don't, I don't remember what it was, but one of their real popular songs, Sleep Now in the Fire. So the whole idea was they were just going to go, play loud, everybody on Wall Street was going to be mad, the police were going to kick them out, they just film it, and that would be the video. So they went, they started playing. There was a little confusion. People were looking around. Nothing happens. They play again. You know, some cops are talking to each other on radios, and I think they close some security gate. Play a couple more times, and then finally they start hearing this sound coming from around the corner. It's going, rah, 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 rah. They don't know what's going there. They keep playing, and it's getting louder and louder. And soon they see from a few blocks away around the corner are hundreds of Wall Street workers in suits going like this. And as they get closer, they realize they're saying, suits for rage, suits for rage. The thing is that they wish there was a whole different world. They don't think they can do anything about it, so they're going to get in wherever they fit in. I mean, think about how many radical professors there are, maybe some of them here, radical artists, things like that. We kind of know that maybe we should be building a party, but this is where we pay our bills. And so they're not any different, really, from us and from what we're doing. Because people don't think there's a way to change it, they just join wherever. And so there are a lot of people, you know, that have positions in the world that wish there was a whole nother thing. And so some of them are like, cool, I can put some money at this and feel good. 
about it because, you know, I'm not doing anything else but that. So there are a lot of contradictions in it, and there are very few people in that world that are actually thinking philosophically, even if they are all the way philosophically capitalists and think capitalism is good. They're not thinking philosophically with their money. They're thinking about how they can make money this year. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is Boots Riley, musician, social activist, and the writer-director of the new film, Sorry to Bother You. Boots Riley was recently in Bloomington for a screening of his new film and a live conversation with Janae Cummings at the IU Cinema. You're a communist, and that's something not a lot of people admit. At least it's not something they admit and actually adhere to. Something I think it's a cool thing to say, but not really something that they really embrace. And I'm curious about how you work with the tension between trying to make your art and trying to stay true to those principles. By me being a communist means I want to help make a movement that changes the system, that gets rid of this system, so that we can have a system where the people democratically control the wealth that we create with our labor. That there's no way to have a communist world inside of capitalism. So there's no conflict between being involved in the world as it is and wanting to make a different world. That's more of an anarchist trend. And some of that has been really good. Like, we have this space right here. It's a communal venue. No bands can play here that are signed to major labels. Or It's not changing the system at all. It's maybe making a little bit more space for something, but it's not confronting anything. And so that's my job to help organizers make their organization stronger by getting more people involved because that's the only thing that's going to do it. It's not about me buying the right brands. It's not about me not going to Starbucks or going to Starbucks. It's about getting these ideas out and helping put ideas out there that maybe organizers can use. But on the other aspect about not many people saying they're a communist, there was a study recently by a right-wing think tank out of D.C., I can't remember the name. Harvard did a similar study and came up with similar results, but the right-wing think tank was up in arms about those results because they interviewed 4,200 millennials and 51% of them said they want there to be a socialist society. I think that there's not the stigma that there was. It's only in certain circles that there is that stigma. And the people that there's stigma with, they weren't going to be near organizing anyway. You know, It's not only recently that I've lived by that principle. I've been doing that since I was 14. And I have never run into someone that was like, I would have been involved in that campaign you were with, but you said you're a communist. When people get into that, they're talking on such an academic level that it's not really at the crux of why people are engaging or not engaging. The main thing that happens in my organizing experience where you even get around to the subject of I'm a communist, people are like, that's cool. I got to pay the bills. Excuse me, I got to get on this bus. You know, that sort of a thing. Because usually 
the campaigns have been something that have nothing to do with how people are surviving. How did you get involved with organizing at such a young age? I mean, 14, 15. I was 14 years old, and a youth organizer showed up in front of my house with a van full of 14-year-old girls. That'll do it. <laughs> and uh, I was like, hey, you want to go with us? We're going to the beach. And I was like, yeah. And they were like, but first we're going to go support the Watsonville cannery workers strike. You still, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go, you know. And then I got in the van, and I mean, at the time, I didn't think of them as young girls, but these young girls, they were talking about things that I kind of heard about on the news, but I really wasn't tuned into. They seemed to understand what was going on. They seemed to care about it. And now I know it's because they thought they could do something about it, which is the thing that then made me care about what was on the news because I thought I could have a say in it, I could have something. But they thought that, and they were very well versed in using terms I hadn't really heard. And I just wanted to be like them. I wanted to be as knowledgeable as that. I wanted to understand something enough to care about it in that way. I think that so much of what we see is racist culture that needs to be gotten rid of is more effectively addressed when people are in motion, like when they have a reason to address it. You know, like there's something that they need to work together on. An example, one of the first examples that became really clear to me is that when we went to support the Watsonville cannery workers strike, and this is 30 years ago, but this is like where I started seeing it was there were these, in that case, there were Mexican workers, Filipino workers, and Portuguese workers. And there had been years and years of tribal, you know, like they do this and all this kind of stuff. And it only really started being addressed in a real way. Even though there had been people like in the community saying, look, we got to get people to work together and not do this. It only really got addressed in a real way when they had to have this strike and they knew it wasn't going to succeed without them. So sometimes when things are divorced from a struggle that people have to work on together, then there's not a context for how to work on it, whether it's needed. One thing might be to find some struggles to get folks involved in that they have to work together on. I think it's the natural follow-up. Then how does this lead to starting the coup? Before that, I was playing guitar, trumpet, and piano. And I basically just wanted to be Prince. But I didn't want to practice as much as it would take to be Prince. And so I kind of, once I got into organizing, I thought of those previous things that I wanted to get into as being really individualistic, as just kind of wanting to be famous. And what I see now is that it was all part of the same thing. Like, we're all told we aren't anything. We don't mean anything. We have nothing that we can do or say about anything but the people that are powerful are the ones on tv they're the ones that everyone cares about they're the ones that matter and so there's a drive to make your life matter and for some people at first that's the only the thing that you see but then once i became involved in organizing i've got that at the time, I didn't see the connection. I had looked at the other 
stuff as being really individual. But at the same time, my grandmother ran the Oakland Ensemble Theater in the 70s and 80s, so I'd been around that. I was writing plays in high school, and I was involved in something called the Black Repertory Group, which was a small storefront theater thing. Through that same organization, which is called the Progressive Labor Party, I started going to these summer projects, which was supporting an anti-racist farm workers union that was being made by folks who had broken off from the UFW because the UFW was anti-undocumented workers. They were helping immigration authorities to deport undocumented workers, sometimes after they did their work right before they got their paycheck. They were writing stuff in the papers, in their own newspapers that were calling undocumented workers wetbacks, things like that. This group of folks who actually had come from some student movements that happened in Mexico in 1968, they had decided to come. You know, a lot of times when people end up having to go into exile, they get sponsored and go to a university and go that route. But there was a group of them that said, no, if we're going to leave, we're still going to try to work to bring the revolution somewhere. And so they were like, oh, let's go help Cesar Chavez because obviously we heard he's bringing the revolution. They didn't find that, but they were still there. So they created this anti-racist farm workers union, which by the 80s was picking up steam. And I went to help them out and kind of taught me a lot just through seeing them organize and seeing them have a thought out idea of what they were doing in relationship to systematic change. Filmmaker, musician, and activist Boots Riley. In conversation with Janae Cummings. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Boots Riley has combined art and activism for most of his career as a frontman for the hip-hop band The Coup and an organizer for groups like Occupy Oakland. What do you think about activism today and kind of how that functions in various communities? Because it doesn't seem, and perhaps I'm wrong, that this kind of organizing is happening on a large scale across the country. It is happening more than we think it is happening. I would say that. I happen to, for instance, and maybe a lot of people here do, I happen to know about the West Virginia teacher strike, but a lot of people don't. There are other things like that happening all over the place and people being involved in that. What is not happening is it's not at a level where it's gone out beyond workplace-related things, and I think that it can, if there's a militant and radical leadership to that, it can be workplace-related and then also used in connection with some of the other movements that are happening, you know, Black Lives Matter-type things or other social justice movements. There's examples of it in the last 50, 60 years. There's a documentary that's on YouTube from Australia called Breaking the Foundations, and it's about the Building Laborers Federation, BLF, in Sydney in the 60s and 70s, and basically they were gangster-controlled and very ineffective union in the 50s, and breaking away from them and becoming a very militant labor union that was able to just shut down sites and they get 
the pay that they wanted, then also becoming a very radical movement where they were aligning with community groups around gentrification issues and other things and shutting down whole corporations, business plans and being very effective. And they got so effective, and this is the part that we would have to figure out, but they got so effective that those corporations started disappearing the leaders because they were winning these things. The whole point is that it could grow. The activism today, I think, is very much a child of the new left of the 60s. Since then, it has been all about spectacle. It's been about letting our voices be heard. 40 years before that, in the 20s and 30s, if you have 50,000 people on the street, it was because these were 50,000 people that could shut down your industry. It was a demonstration of power. During the 40s, there was this united front against fascism. But just backing it up before that, the biggest liberal advances that we got in the 20th century, as far as policy is concerned, are inarguably the civil rights movement and the New Deal. And the New Deal came about during that time while there were people occupying factories throughout the Midwest and in mining places like Montana and Utah and Colorado and Alabama, workers were having militant strikes. It was getting into even gunplay in certain cases. And you had people at the same time on the West Coast in California where you had the longshoremen who were thought of as less skilled than we think fast food workers are. And they had a very militant strike in which they were met with state militia and tanks and things like that. And the reason I brought up the longshoremen is because there were so many naysayers in the labor movement that were saying you couldn't organize the longshoremen because they had various sites, it's high turnover, supposedly very low skill, things like that. And they still can shut down the whole port. And they do, they're militant but not radical, so they'll be like, we're shutting it down for Oscar Grant's birthday for one day. And it doesn't matter because they just said that it was only going to be one day. But Everything that happens in the U.S. is something we can shut down. We're not organized there because unions only comprise about 7% of the actual workforce. We're not organized there. And the only way that they got to that point in the 30s had a lot to do with the 1800s. It wasn't like they were just there. So every way that products get to us here, we can organize. And it's not at the site of production. It's how things move to us, how things get out. We can organize those things. And I believe that the reason that there's only 7% of the workforce organized isn't just to do with, like, apathy and people. I think it has to do, one, with labor unions following the letter of the law, like Taft-Hartley, which says there can't be solidarity strikes. So, therefore, strikes are less effective if you follow the law. That's why there has to be a radical leadership to it, one that can lead even if it goes to jail. And that's how these unions got built in the first place. There was radical leadership that had a vision beyond just those things. So we are in a different place right now, but part of it has to do with where the labor movement is and who's leading it or the attitudes of those that are leading it. Wherever people are working, and most people, are working somewhere, you can shut it down. That includes the whole West Coast. I mean, matter of fact, the longshoremen 
on the West Coast are the most militant union that there is in the United States. Usually they're complaining like, why does it have to be us? Why are people asking us to shut down again? Well, they need to do it. And so, yeah, I think the 20s and 30s were a different situation, but they were that situation because of the decades that it happened before. And so I think that we can get to that sort of a situation again and maybe take it further than that. But I, I don't think we have to have production jobs only to do it. Because even to the extent that they're not here, they have to come through here. Otherwise, one of the biggest markets in the world is shut off. So we can shut those things down at any point in its production and delivery. So during this whole milieu and revolutions going on all over the place in a period where there was supposedly one million card-carrying communists in a population that was much small, during, in that whole milieu is where we got the New Deal. And it wasn't because the left got together and was like, we all got to focus all our attention on getting FDR in. It wasn't because people knew you can make whichever politician do what you want if you have a movement that can shut down industry. And if you don't have a movement that can shut down industry, you can get whatever politician you want in and they will not be able to do the things that we need them to do. Then in general, there was a change in tactic that had somewhat to do with the uh, United Front Against Fascism and the idea that radicals and communists in the US should not be fighting the US while they're fighting Hitler. And that led to changes in how people organized on the job, who people told them they were, and all this kind of stuff. And they went underground. And so that made it easier for the McCarthy era to be around, in which they were able to be like, look at these folks, they're not even telling you who they are which 15 years before wouldn't have been the case. Now, that combined with things that got exposed about Stalin and splits in parties around that, developed all these little organizations that became the New Left. The New Left had a whole different tactic. One was, they said, very in your face, we are revolutionaries, right? But on the other hand, they moved away from the places that had really been red states before, had been hotbeds of communist activity, moved away from organizing the working class and focused on students. In the 60s was the first time you heard the idea that students are the revolution. It wasn't historically accurate at all. Only at the time you had like the cultural revolution happening, maybe, which wasn't what they were talking about. And you had people congregating to certain areas and not doing work. Obviously what I'm leaving out is that people were purged from unions as well, but there wasn't the fight to stay in there. It had been assessed as something that was gonna be left behind. And because of that change in work, there was a change in strategy and tactic of what the left was doing. And it became about spectacle and if what you're doing is all about getting the word out, letting the idea be known, then you might as well write a book, you might as well make a movie, you might as well make songs instead. Our whole idea of what a social movement was supposed to do has been changed since those times. And since it's been based on spectacle, there's a whole different idea of what an activist is supposed to do and it changes into a whole different culture where if you have an idea that involves class struggle, 
then you understand that the people you disagree with that are in the working class, you got to figure out how to get them onto your side. But if your idea of activism is not about class struggle, it doesn't matter. It's just about I'm right and I'm going to tell the truth because me telling the truth is being a social movement because it's all about spectacle. And that has changed everything that we do. Is it possible for the left to form a movement, given what you've just said about how it's changed? Oh, yeah, and it's happening. I think people are working through that. There's folks like IWW who are organizing in places like Starbucks and other fast food places in the Midwest that we don't have, so I don't know the names of. There are all these flashes of light where people are doing these things, are organizing on the job. I mean, because the other aspect of how activism has been for the past 40 years has been like, do it on your time off. Come to this rally after work or on Saturday, which nobody has the time for, or very few people do. And they also don't see how it's going to win. And so I think the idea of taking these struggles to your job, wherever that is, is something that is exciting and people are doing. And folks that are involved in the other kinds of movements that have been spectacle, they are also looking for how to give their movements more teeth, how to make them have to be dealt with as opposed to just being informational. I'm going to pull this back to the movie a bit. This hyper-capitalist society led by a Jeff Bezos type and Steve Lift Steve Lift is played by Army Hammer, who comes from the Armand Hammer family. He's a third generation, like, oil baron. Was he even acting? There could be no one better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the crazy thing about Armand Hammer, as people may know, is that the first famous Armand Hammer was actually the son of someone else that was famous. He was the son of the leader of the Socialist Party of the USA, which is why he's named Armand Hammer actually is also symbolic of some of the mistakes of the Soviet Union, because Lenin was writing letters saying everybody should do business with Arm and Hammer. The contradiction in there is very full and juicy. He did have to act, because as far as we're talking about Army Hammer, he is this person trying to figure out who he is in all of this, and is the perfect person to play the part, because he's someone that is strikingly likable whenever you meet him and is someone very aware of his family's legacy and wears that on his sleeve. And I believe one of the reasons he wanted to do this movie had to do with wanting to take part in something like this, wanting to use his stature to help out a film like this. However, I think that, yeah, he had to act in the sense that he had to feel like what he was doing was helping the world. In real life, nobody thinks that they're doing evil. Everyone is doing what they're doing, and it's some sort of compromise or contradiction, but they've brought themselves something to think that they have to do it or that it's good for the world. And so I I needed someone that could play that and be likable as opposed to someone that like, aha, you know, villainous people act villainly because for someone to be able to do that they have to have something magnetic about them for someone to be able to organize capital at that level they have to convince people and that's something you saw prior to filming with him 
Uh, yeah, I mean, we had only had Skype stuff, so yeah, yeah. But I saw that in there, and I saw that in some of his other work. And what he does, I think, I know you were saying that for a different reason, was he even acting, but he doesn't necessarily get the credit that he should for acting because, I mean, you think about it like this, like Robert De Niro is usually a great actor, but he's not somebody who you're not going to hire him to play an Irish prisoner or something like that. You're not going to hire him to play a French artist. He doesn't do imitations. The actors that I like are putting themselves in emotional situations and letting themselves feel that, and that gets projected through that. They're not like showing you the face that shows they're mad. They're getting to a place where they're angry or scared or putting themselves in those situations and therefore not imitating someone being mad or angry or things like that. And for some people, you'll hear them make comments about certain actors and be like, oh, he's good, but it's like he's not even acting. And that's the difference between like soap opera and play acting and the acting that I like that comes across on film where you feel like it's just a real person there is able to turn on a dime and make these things happen if I give them direction around it. I want to pull things in a different direction. I want to talk about the white voice. I think most black people and people of color know the term code switch, going from vernacular English to, I don't know, that uh, you know kind of customer service voice. But you have said that there is more to the white voice in this film than that. Well, yeah. I believe that code switching is something that kind of came up in anthropological study sort of thing. I, I think that's kind of what I've heard. And usually that's referring to not actually hiding who you are, but being like, yeah, you can see I'm black, but I'm safe. I'm not going to steal your stuff. You know, I, you know, and that's one thing that does happen in the film later on. But early on, he's just simply making the people he's calling think that he's white, which is different. He's playing a role, and it's very obvious to himself that he's playing a role. Whereas some of the code switching we do in real life sometimes is conscious and sometimes it's unconscious. And it's almost an apology in and of itself. You know, I'll find myself being in a store, and it won't even be about how someone has looked at me or anything like that, but I'm aware from a lifetime of experience, I'm thinking about, oh, I want to make sure they don't think I'm stealing something. So I'll find myself standing in a certain way or introducing myself to people that I wouldn't normally, you know, things like that, that just happen unconsciously, and then you think about why you're doing those things. I think that's more insidious. But on the other hand, I think that we all are performing all the time and that there's no way around it. That's just part of human existence. The question is, why are we doing which performances and what does that say about what we're thinking and what we're feeling? Related to that, Danny Glover says, I'm not talking about Will Smith White. For the audience, talk to us about the difference there. Well, I wanted to make it clear that what I was talking about didn't have simply to do with whether someone was using a certain kind of grammar or not. That argument comes up all the time. I wanted it to be that what they're talking about 
is a performance of whiteness that even white people sometimes do, that is this idea of what whiteness is supposed to be that is not, as it says in the film, not what white people necessarily actually sound like. It's what they wish they sounded like and what they think they're supposed to sound like. And in reality, I think that that particular performance of whiteness is in response to ideas that are created by racist tropes of blackness. We see these racist tropes of blackness and they have a utility because what we're told is, look at these black folks or other people of color for that matter, they are savage, their family isn't together, and they just don't have the hunger for education or all sorts of number of things to say, that's why they're poor. That's why they're in poverty. These racist tropes have the utility of saying that poverty is created by the impoverished, by these faults, these mistakes, these bad choices that folks are making, and they just need to learn how to invest their money right, you know, or do an interview right, or whatever, all those sorts of things. Now, the reason that that needed to be said is because the real cause of poverty is capitalism itself. Capitalism cannot exist without unemployment. It has to have an army of unemployed workers to threaten the jobs of the folks that are employed. That's what keeps wages low. If you had full employment, People could demand whatever wage they want without even a union, because you can't fire anybody. You can demand whatever you want. To the extent that certain publications, like Wall Street Journal, will openly worry when the unemployment rate starts going low, because that means wages go up and stocks go down. So how do you explain poverty in all the various cultural stories that you're going to tell that include poor people in them? How do you explain that? And how do you explain that to the largest section of the working class in the United States, which are white people? Well, you don't explain it by saying you're not making as much because of your own mistakes. You show a connection of the mistakes of the impoverished with poverty, and you do that by pointing at the other and saying, here's an example. You don't want to be like that. You're not like that. You might be broke, but that's just temporary and it has nothing to do with the system. It has to do with the individuals. And so then you have a white guy making 21,000 a year who thinks they're middle class, who identifies with the ruling class or at least with upper middle class folks as opposed to someone else. And through that, it obscures any analysis of how this system might change. So in reaction to that thing that gets pumped out which are these racist tropes of black folks, there's this other thing, which is I'm not having any problems. Everything's okay, everything's fine. So then when black folks feel that they have to perform something that says they are not these tropes, they go to that when they're at a job. Or in this case, he's, like I said, on the phone, he's straight just lying about who he is. That's where the performance of whiteness by both comes from. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is musician and filmmaker Boots Riley. 
Boots Riley was recently welcomed to Bloomington by the Jorgensen Guest Filmmaker Series for a screening of his film, Sorry to Bother You, and a conversation with Janae Cummings. Moving away from the film, I wanted to ask you about your critique of Black Klansman and Spike Lee. You famously wrote your thoughts in the film, and I think for just reasons, the movie even according to history, takes some liberties with the Foundation memoir and softens the reality enough that it seems to paint cops and civil rights leaders as a united front against racism. What was it like for someone you admired to have a film that crossed those boundaries? There are people I can admire and disagree with. You know, I never had this idea that people that I like for one thing are going to always do everything I agree with. One thing I will say about this is that it's unfortunate that my critique of it is famous because that means that nobody else is saying it. Out of all of these folks critiquing black Klansmen, nobody had that take from it. And people that knew what the story is. So a lot of it gets placed on me and makes it more of a personality thing. I only said what I said because it wasn't being said, because nobody was bringing this up. And I will say this before I go into it, that Spike Lee is one of the reasons that I went to film school, one of the main reasons that I went to film school, and has made a lot of my favorite films. And maybe because they're my favorite films, aesthetically I go away from that. Like I don't think his films, I might be wrong, but I don't think they influenced what I did would sorry to bother you because I definitely know that I like it a lot. So I'm staying away from those sorts of things. And that the film was really well done. Chase Irvin, who shot it, was also someone who I was thinking about shooting. Sorry to bother you. The acting is really good, too. That being said, in the memoir, none of the heroic acts actually happen. There's no bomb. There's no people coming together to get a racist cop kicked out. That's more fantastical than anything that happened in my movie. And I have no problem with changing the truth. I have no loyalty to a true story. The question is, what are you saying with the changes? What are you trying to put forward? What's the idea that we're putting forward with those changes? So none of those heroic things happen. So then you have the fact that someone infiltrated things. When I read the memoir, right at the beginning, it sent off a red flag because he lies right at the beginning. He says that he investigated the Black Panther Party and the Black Panther Party wasn't around there at that time. Who he actually was investigating was the All African People's Revolutionary Party. But I guess he thought nobody knew that group and he wanted to brag, so he wrote Black Panther Party. We also know that they keep all the COINTELPRO papers, they keep all of these things. The police are not thinking that they're scared that someone might know that they infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan. They're not scared of that. So the idea that there's no proof of this because he was ordered to destroy it, he supposedly kept all the papers until he wrote the book in like 2012 and then destroyed it in 2012 so that he could say, this is how I know all this stuff happened. Anyway, I don't really want to go so much into it, but the whole point, is that what he actually was doing at the same time as he was making these calls to David Duke and different things, he was infiltrating the Progressive Labor Party. 
and his reasoning in the book was that they had the statement smash the clan. So he was infiltrating them because they were saying that they were going to break up any clan rallies so that the clan wouldn't want to be there. So if your whole point is to get rid of the clan, first just let them do what they're going to do and it will, will happen. But secondly, what he was doing was going to PLP meetings, Progressive Labor Party meetings, getting the information on how they were going to break up the rallies, telling his people at the police department, and that information was also getting to the Klan, and the rallies were changed because of that. So how is that like destroying the Klan? On one occasion, he heard something about how they were going to break up the induction rally and then went and offered himself to David Duke as his personal bodyguard. So it's a different picture of that. Whatever. I don't care about this one cop, and I don't have like this thing of like, I want to expose this one cop. But the point that I'm bringing up is that, one, if you're going to make cops the heroes in the fight against racism, you're going to have to lie a lot. <laughs> you know? Because they never were. And why is that important? It's important because right now we're at a point where these issues of how to fight racist organizations and how to fight racism is coming up. Like, how does it happen? What do folks do? There's a question about Antifa, and is that the right way? There's a question about Black Lives Matter. Who should folks ally with? Well, this movie gives you a whole bunch of answers that are based on false stories, and that would be that, hey, you can work with the cops on this if you need to. And the other thing that I point out is that Many of the times that we know about the cops actually infiltrating the Klan, where there are records of it, you will find that they actually infiltrated the Klan to fight against radical organizations from within the Klan, get them to fight them. So there's the example of Greensboro, North Carolina in 1979. The FBI with the local police infiltrated the Klan and did an amazing feat of organization where all the police in that town took a break for 20 minutes. During that 20 minutes, the Klan opened fire on a crowd of anti-fascist protesters. And then another earlier thing, the Klan executed a civil rights worker from Detroit, and turns out years later, it was the FBI agent who shot her point blank in the head. But instead of the FBI doing it, it was the Klan that did it at the time. I think the reason that I felt like I had to say something is because I feel like it's dangerous to put that idea out there right now that the police are somehow the force against racism because it changes what people will do with the movement. And so that was my only reason for doing it. It wasn't just basic film criticism like I don't like this movie or I do like this movie or I disagree with this movie. It was something that I felt was very important to where we are. And I see other interviews with him, and instead of anybody bringing up these ideas, they're like, what do you think about what Boots Riley said? And really, it's like the cowardly way out, because they should say, what about these ideas? It's the idea of this being a Spike Lee joint, after all that we've grown up with, after all that we've seen, is just astonishing to me. It's not astonishing to me. He did a Navy commercial before that. What? So yeah, yeah. I mean, this was like this is old news. Like he went to the Navy and was like, I I want to make a commercial for you. I retract the statement that I just made. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> and 
he's not the only person that feels that way. So it's not about me being like, I need to talk about Spike Lee. I needed to talk about that issue because it's at an important time in how we're figuring out how we're moving. And, you know, Spike Lee is an amazing filmmaker. He just put this to the wrong use, put his skills to the wrong use, I believe. One last question. Who is in your inner circle? Who says, hey, that's dope, or no, that's not the right one? Um, I don't have anybody like that. I am usually just observing how the idea is working. But, you know, within that, there are people like the production design. For instance, in this film, you work with different people at different times, but there's no one person. If I'm producing some music, I'll be collaborating with different musicians, and I'll probably have some ideas that might technically not be what someone thinks you're supposed to do musically. And some of those things, I might be like, that's why we're doing it. And then other of those things, I'll be like, okay, you're right. How do we change this? There's no one person, but there's a lot of people like that. And like, So the production designer, I might be like, I want this wall to split in two, and they're going to be like, well, these are going to be the problems with that. You're going to see this shaking, you know, all those sorts of things. So there's some of that that's going on with every interaction I'm having, but there's no, like, one person like that. Bruce, we want to thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Boots Riley, musician, social activist, author, and the writer-director of the new film, Sorry to Bother You. Boots Riley spoke with Janae Cummings at the IU Cinema, where he was recently hosted by the Jorgensen Guest Filmmaker Series. Special thanks to John Vickers of IU Cinema and to the OVW Jorgensen Foundation. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.